Hi, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Dr. Sharif Moore of the Drug-Free America Foundation, and this is the Pathways to Prevention podcast, where we discuss some of the most innovative and inspiring work being done around the world in substance use prevention, treatment, and recovery. Joining us today is Shane Varco, the Executive Director of the Dalgarno Institute in Australia and the author of a superb new report entitled Cannabis and the Gateway Drug Theory, Correlation or Causation, Where Does the Evidence Point? Shane, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, uh, would you mm. mind just sharing with our with our audience uh, your journey and how you came to work in the drug demand reduction field? Wow, that's a an open-ended question with a, a long <laughs> narrative. I'll try and I'll try and keep it brief and uh, for the sake of our viewers. I suppose I've been working with young people for yeah, just over forty years and. And that's a, a long and varied history in, in different sectors. And it was sort of organic uh, how I was approached by uh, the sector uh, about 13 years ago because I was working for another organisation. We're running uh, a lot of uh, incursions into schools, uh, particularly with young people, looking at uh, values-based education across across a lot of different subjects. Uh, we're running and writing and running seminars on well-being and development, on uh, worldview, on uh, you know, mental health, emotional health, everything from bullying right through sex education, everything in between. Of course, alcohol and other drug education was part of that that uh, brief. And what was happening, I was noticing a well, as you know, substance use, like pretty much no other, no other uh, addiction potential agency is 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 horrendous, and it has a quick and lasting impact. Sure, other things can be addictive, you know, gambling, pornography, uh, sex, all sorts of other issues can be addictive, but substance use, particularly illicit substances, can do uh, uh, untold damage quickly and sustain the damage for long periods of time. So watching that, particularly with young people developing, watching that that emergence really have an incredibly devastating impact on the development potential of young people. So that was kind of bubbling in the background. I I, I do have a, a brother who is um, a younger brother who is in a basically suffers from a, uh, a schizoaffective state because of his cannabis use. And this is way before the new new iterations of cannabis have hit the marketplace. And people say, was that the driver for you being involved? And no, no, he had that problem when I was, he said that problem when I was about 25, 26. So I was aware of it. And I watched the impact on him personally. And on the family and how that uh, the addiction and the drivers that uh, that facilitates and all the, the negative outcomes and watching my family wrestle with that and having to intervene with my family to in violence and in uh, in other areas and just helping my mum and dad who are just the most awesome people who care and love for their for their son uh, just be taken advantage of and and run over it and on watching that all happen was also a, a factor but not a driver for me. So it's it's just, a, 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 I suppose, a, a passion for young people to see them realise their potential, their capacity, their full agency, and seeing what this rabid shortcut to the d- diminishing of those things uh, be uh, unfettered, basically, and you know, growing a... Growing a, a Normalisation, and again, at the hands of a very, very loud but very uh, well-funded and and prolifically <laughs> uh, engaging sector. So, yeah, that, that's kind of, I mean, there's a lot more to it. Uh, but, again, I suppose ostensibly working with young people for 40 years and watching their development, helping them develop well with a minimal amount of, you know, negative impacts is probably the key driver. I hope that's helpful. No, absolutely. And, and thank you for all the wonderful work you've been doing. Um, you know, I think the, the, the minds of our youth are a nation's most precious commodity. And to see this precious commodity under assault, you know, the way it is and for profit, um, yeah. it just, it just boggles the mind because as we know from the science, the adolescent brain is uniquely vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, to addiction 
uh, because the brain is developing until uh, approximately the age of 26. Uh, mm -hmm. So they have that heightened uh, vulnerability. Um, now, what exactly is uh, the status of cannabis in, in Australia? Is Do you have medical uh, cannabis programs or? Yeah, well, of course, unquote, the, uh, medical, right? Yeah, 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 thank you. Thank you for that clarification in parentheses. Yeah, uh, we do. We do have a, an emerging. Yeah, medical cannabis. I hate the word. Uh, yeah, medicalized cannabis. We've not. I think the, sadly, the advantage of the the um, the disastrous American experiment, is that the rest of the world is looking at this. And uh, Uruguay, obviously, we're, we're pre predated the US and uh, and Canada certainly leapt in the deep end pretty fast. And uh, but yeah, we we tend to follow the Canada the, the Canadian kind of thing because we're part of the Commonwealth. It tends to look at that, whereas the US system is a little bit different. So, but we, we've got the the medical model has been adopted here, and and again, not as brazenly and as poorly as it has been done in America. Basically, in anything that if you just stick the name medical in front of marijuana, it's 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 a medicine. You know? So I think we've we're we're a lot further from that away from that idiocy, and I'm going to use that word candidly. Uh, we we have played into a. The hype and the propaganda that's that's really driven a lot of the the messaging around cannabis, uh, medical cannabis particularly. So again, anecdote is interesting. Anecdote drives sentiment, and anecdote and sentiment now drive policy formation, which I find breathtaking in a, in a supposedly a supposedly an evidence based scientific framework that we're supposed to be operating in. We have an organisation here which is mirrors your FDA called TGA Therapeutic Good Administration. And what was fascinating to watch is that they have not come out and pointedly said this is medicine and this is not because we've had, as you have in America, we've got two uh, cannabis-based medicines, which are legitimate medicines, fully clinically trialled, double-blind, placebo-based trials that have been conducted and, and well and truly landed, which which is, I think, Sativex and Marinol, which are basically uh, for uh chemotherapy suffering patients, you know, for appetite suppressant uh, yeah, ignition. So they've been on in our PBS, our public uh, benefits health scheme, uh, for 25 years. So people say, oh, we get this new revelation of marijuana coming into our, as this new great panacea of all ills. Uh, it's, it's not true. We've had medicines there for that purposes. But the so what the TGA have done, and I'm, I'm, I hope I can reflect this accurately, is it not said this is medicine and uh, still there's still trials going on. Of course Epidiolex is now, sorry I should say, Epidiolex has now come into the marketplace as well, which which is a legitimate medicine as well. GW Pharma, to their credit, spent $1.3 billion in you know, 10, 12 years working very hard to ensure that they got a properly clinically trialed medicine with all the you know the side effects and all the dynamics that are part of that, that good medicine and good medicine practice has, that's sorry, pharmaceutical practice has, ensuring that the, the people are getting a product that does do what it claims to do, but it also doesn't do what it's not claiming to do, you know what I mean? So it's got mm -hmm. that whole. So they've done that well. So we've got basically three medicines, but everything else is now falls under this new category is not, uh, is not registered, but it's recommended as with caution you can use certain manifestations of it. So we've landed in this really grey area and the TGA have opened that door. And, again, they have been subject to the the pressure because the politicians have been subject to pressure from the industry. Uh, not as ferocious as it is in America. I've been following and working with a lot of people in the US, including uh, obviously our great friends and partners, Drug Free American Foundation, uh, and, of course, you know, Sam and, and other groups. And just the insanity of the the the, the lobbying done by the pro cannabis yeah. propaganda machine is just breathtaking. So we don't have that 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 insanity going in, but we do have this kind of grey area, which is a, a, a crack in the door, a thin end of the wedge, if you like. Um, so yeah, it is it is their CBD. The other one, just quickly, the other CBD is now everyone's throwing that out because there is a caution around THC. People are saying, look, okay, let's be careful, which is good. But the CBD phenomena is now, you know, it's getting its own momentum. And now over-the-counter CBD is kind of almost off the chain here. It's kind of crept in without any regulation at all. And now TGA are trying to 
bring in some regulations, but they basically say, oh, CBD's harmless. Now, we know it's not, it doesn't give you a high and create so, you know, psychoaffective states, but it has got its own series of issues and concerns that the, the science is now revealing. It's quite concerning both short yeah. and long term. So that's another issue that we're trying to bring to the table and say, hang on, guys, what's, what's going on here? We're not looking at this properly. We're not vetting this as we should all medicines. And this rush to, uh, to market uh, because, you know, well, everyone else is doing it, so we want to get in and try and cash in before it all goes pear-shaped is really quite That, that harms patients. I, I've known uh, cancer patients who have foregone, you know, proven treatments in yeah. favour of CBD because of these unsubstantiated claims that have been made about the health benefits, um, you know, of CBD. And it's just, it's totally crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's that's a real concern. And of course, there's a lot of the science around the harms of CBD coming out of Australia. Uh, one of our one of our DART team, our drug and alcohol resource team, we have a, a very good reference group that we have three professors on, including other practitioners and clinicians. Uh, we have a criminologist, excuse me, a biologist and a psychologist, two psychologists actually, uh, on our reference group. And one of the leading biologists, and he's also a physician, uh, Professor Stuart Reese. He is uh, writing a lot of the seminal work globally on this issue. But again, the science is is overwhelming. But again, anecdote. Trump science, yeah, 140. They used to say one of our favourite lines is, they used to say the pen is mightier than the sword. Now, 140 character tweet is greater uh, greater power than 10,000 evidence based academic articles. I mean, literally, that's what we're we're contending with in in a this uh, social media driven culture, which you know, facts and science are just you know sacrificed on the altar of convenience and propaganda very quickly. Yeah, and it, uh, one of the real problems we have here in the United States is how these marijuana companies are using um, poorly designed research as marketing, and it gives it an air of legitimacy because the average consumer, you know, they don't have training in, in science. They're not able to evaluate the strengths of a research study, but the company's able to make a claim uh, like, well, the research has shown that, um, you know, marijuana can actually improve PTSD, but they don't mention that the study, you know, only had like 10 people in it, whereas the larger studies, you know, in studies of like hundreds of veterans, uh, Iraq war veterans uh, that had PTSD, it actually worsened their Correct. PTSD symptoms. And, you know, of course, in our country, as you know, um, the whole... FDA regulatory framework has been completely circumvented, which is mm, mm. Uh, it's just unheard of. So it sounds like kind of that Australia is is sort of going that way too, right? That um, they're they're just bypassing your the TDA, is it? TGA, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, look, I think that they're trying to, and I think we've got. Uh, there's been a some pushback, and certainly there. Were, Again, in our sector, as in America, there's a very small, by comparison, very small uh, opponents to this. You know? And and we, we we do wield the lion's share of evidence-based research. But unfortunately, it, the capacity to deploy that into the marketplace for it to be heard and taken up is really difficult. So we have to do with the best we can with what we have with our limited resources, as we all know, we, we, you know, We've got a very small part of the pie that we we get our resources from, and and like yourselves, we're a very small not-for-profit charity, uh, and we're punching way above our weight. Uh, but we have to you know, be in the marketplace and, and aggressive in, in what we do. But yes, the TGA, as I said, we've got this uh, these, these little caveats that are snuck into the. They've not they've not given an open door, but they're certainly given a, a crack in the door. But with the science coming out, and we're trying to get to uh, at our federal level, we have. Difficult. We have a more conservative government federally, uh, but we have in a lot of our states we have a more. You know, I hate the word, you know, progressive conservative. They're just terms that you know can be used pejoratively. So I, I don't want to use those terms. But we have more um, uh, liberal, and that's that's a different word in America. But they tend to be more uh, you know, pro-drug. You know, one of for example, in our, our Australian capital territory. Uh, which is where our national capital is, the the majority of the, funnily enough, it's where most bureaucrats live. So the majority of the 
of the the parliamentarians there the the, the party is the the so-called left or progressive party and they're all very much you know more into the harm reduction normalizing drug use you know let's uh, all those kind of things um which again harm reduction is a legitimate mechanism and we have no problem with it but when it's used as a to wield as a tool to actually normalize drug use it's a weapon uh, against humanity not for it so this group now is they they in their territory which against national laws have decriminalized cannabis use and growth and now they're right in the process as a result like they did in america they didn't Seattle, I did in Colorado. Once you've got that on the table, then it's just decriminalise everything else. So they've actually got a bill that's, and they'll if they do it on vote only, they will get what they want. They will decriminalise all drugs for personal use in our Australian Capital Territory. Now, federally, there can be an overriding of that, uh, and the federal government doesn't pull the trigger on that because there's a lot of backlash, as you can imagine. But... Uh, We've got this kind of measure, and is cannabis is that gateway drug in that sense, policy-wise. Right. It's a gateway to other drug use because it says, okay, well, you know, look, we've done this successfully because we, we bury all the evidence of harm and we laud all the evidence for, for profitability. But, yeah, and then we then we sort of introduce the next phase. And, well, okay, that worked. Let's try this. I'll work with it. Within six months of decriminalising cannabis, they threw this this out there and last December, we, we challenged that straight away. So, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We knew this was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen so quickly. So, again, it's that in that context, a gateway. It's a gateway to other drug use purely on a policy basis. So, so like a yeah, Trojan horse, right, Correct. to usher in broader legalization. Now, in Australia, uh, are, are doctors able to recommend uh, marijuana the, the same way they do here in the U.S.? Interesting, uh, it's it's emerging because what happened, uh, just to give you one example, 2017, a, the Western Australian government, they were one of the first ones uh, to sort of promote you know, medical cannabis because people were wanting it. So, again, the, the people say, oh, we want this. And, again, the placebo effect around marijuana is breathtaking already, pardon the ironic pun, but it is it is <laughs> it is huge. Um but also the yeah, it, the placebo effect betrays a lot of the other harms that are happening under the radar, which don't become manifest until later further on down the line, particularly if they're not heavy users. So those there are of course there are those who use medical marijuana just to get high and that's an excuse. But a lot of people aren't out simply out to get weed so they can, you know use the medical ticket to go and get stoned, that's not their agenda. They actually believe that this is going to help them. And then when they've tried it, oh, this works. Uh, and we're seeing that there was a an unleashing of this. Now, in WA, for example, and this 2007, and I'll get back to this, is, there's 10,000-plus doctors in WA. It's, it's a very big state in Australia. It's huge. It's bigger than you know, Texas, literally, it's, and it covers about a third of our country. But population-wise, it's very, very sparse, and the concentration levels tend to be down in the southeast and now the, the capital city, Perth, and a few other areas. So that the, they said, oh, we, we, want the, we want the doctors to prescribe medical marijuana because people want it. All doctors in 2017 in WA said, we will not prescribe this until we have more science. There's just, the science on this is not credible. And they said the harms are still there, so we're not going to do it. And the, the, the head, the premier, or if you like the governor, in your words, of that state said, pounds his fist, come on, you've got, to, you've got to prescribe this. People want it. So, again, well, now that's changed because it's become more popular and and uh, more money's come in, and, and and now they have groups running around training doctors. There are this other subsect, a uh, subsector uh, of cannabis experts. They're going and train doctors about the the benefits of that. And a lot of doc doctors are starting to go, okay, well, if there's other doctors you know, banging on about this and people doing that, coming up with and some of the science, and they use the same science you do. It, some of the evidence suggests, and the evidence suggests this and suggests that, and suggests, oh, okay, so. Well, and uh, of course, CBD is easier to get going uh, because that's you know they, they always say, "Oh, it's not you won't get stoned on this." So again, we're, it's slowly starting to shift because again, it's just the constant barrage of of push, push, push from the from the lobby, and recruiting, of course, you know, like the 
like their pro drug role you do they recruit you know ex big guns and they wield their power through again anecdote and uh you know memes and one liners you know that's that's how you you drive sentiment in a in a propaganda space you just keep banging the same drum war on drugs has failed you know we have not had a war on drugs in this country we never had one and the, but they use it here all the time oh the war on drugs what war First question we ask people is, sorry, can you tell me when did we fight a war on drugs in Australia? Okay, you might be able to find a some sort of you know anchor point in America for that argument. But what about here? When did we have a war? Oh, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. You know, and it just blows my mind uh, that literally for the vast majority of the conditions, the qualifying conditions for which uh, medical cannabis is recommended here in the United States, there's not a single shred of evidence of any benefit. And for some of it, it's adverse, like, you know, especially with the the mental health conditions like depression, anxiety. Um, As far as I know, the only conditions that marijuana or THC uh, actually have some benefit are very specific types of neuropathic pain, um, nausea, and then you know seizure disorders, and that's it. But in in all the states that have legalized marijuana for medical use or recreational use, I mean the the list of qualifying conditions is just, I mean, huge. Everything from headaches to I mean uh, PTSD to Parkinson's to autism. Yeah, look, I, you're dead right. I think all you need is like confirmation bias. All I need is a, you know, a very small study from somewhere that, that I pick up on and I'll wield that with authority. You know, I think they call it hurling elephants. Uh, and you sort of go, oh, look at this. I mean, wait, I what about the other science? And, and when you look at the glaucoma, for example, the Glaucoma Foundation came out talking about, oh, it's good for your glaucoma, which was one of the earlier uh, conditions that, you know, weed was kind of prescribed for. Oh, I, I need it for my glaucoma. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, as I understand from the science, you know, you, 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 when you're smoking wheat for glaucoma, what it does is it you need you know, X amount of uh, THC, and what it does is it reduces the pressure of the eyes. It does absolutely for a very short period of time. Then it comes back worse, so you have to smoke it again. So basically, or use the drug with smoke, you know, vape, ingest whatever uh, you know delivery vehicle you're you're adapting. Is what they found was that it it doesn't fix the glaucoma. What it does is it actually makes it work, and to maintain that level of even just a modicum of order, you are permanently stoned. You are permanently stoned, and so the glaucoma foundation said this: this is not a credible medicine for glaucoma. But hey, if you want to be stoned and you want to use glaucoma as an excuse, oh, there it is. There's your ticket. And of course, uh, and this so this is what's happening. And then you've got, as you said, neuropathic pain. The the, uh, the pain Australia came out, and we we posted there. They're basically uh, their words saying unless if you're taking if you're taking medical marijuana it, it it it's only medical marijuana if it's been done through a proper clinical trial if it's not it's not medical marijuana and the then they said that we basically they, they came out and said no cannabis is not they basically put on the blacklist cannabis on the blacklist for pain management but yeah for the, so the bottom line is we've got a culture that that has reverted back to, you know, and this is what's a breathtaking. We're supposed to be progressive, yet we're reverting back to a, a an unsustainable, a dangerous model that's going to create more harm than good. And we, um, I think just to juxtapose too, which is interesting, that the, you remember thalidomide? I do, yes. Yeah. Because well, birth believe, defects. Yes. Well, the US, they, when it came out, the U.S. actually decided to ban it, as I understand, if, because it was a morning sickness drug, much like cannabis has been promoted as a morning sickness drug. And But I think the U.S., the FDA said, no, no, there's some issues with this. We're not going. Australia didn't ban it. We used it, right? We actually released it in the market. And even, even the last five years, we're still finalising class actions against those companies and paid out for those sufferers of thalidomide, uh, the the, uh, the the deformities. So thalidomide was banned, it was taken off, but it was released first. And so this great wonder, you know, morning sickness is awful. Right? If, if you've ever experienced someone with morning sickness, 
you know, it's serious. It's just awful. It's just a terrible, terrible condition. Some people suffer with it. Some women suffer with it terribly. Uh, and so this was a great, you know, panacea to the morning. And, and yet the side effects because it wasn't properly clinically trialled. And now we're going with marijuana. We're leaping into a similar space because we now know it has huge implications on, on the developing uh, fetus. And so we've got this, you know, emerging, you know, public health disaster coming down the line. Well, it's already emerging now, but we're, we're still ignoring that data as we move forward. We're saying, no, well, this, oh, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll manage the damage. But the rates of defects, of all kinds of defects, are manifesting because of cannabis involvement in, in those, in those right, demographics. And, and some of them don't uh, manifest until later in childhood and adolescence. Like the research right. is showing just a whole array of uh, neurocognitive and neurobehavioral deficits, poor mental health, uh, you know, impulsivity, cognitive yes. deficits. Uh, there was even a study that came out of uh, Canada not too long ago showing uh, an association with autism. Yes. So it's really frightening. Yeah, and I think that's that's a, a real concern that, and this is where the whole causation and correlation issue comes in. Of course, the bad guys, the bad actors, they always throw up the, the, the correlation argument. Oh, it's just it's correlation effect. It's not, it's not a causation. You've got to make that link. And I think the links are becoming more and more evident and undeniably so. I think that's going to be, that's going to be the real issue at the moment with, with the wave of propaganda and, and the wave of uh, yeah, anecdotal, anecdotal vomit, for want of a better word, that's kind of, you know, gushing over all of us, is that it, it is the science is it's there and it's and it's clearly there. You can see a lump in the vomit. Sorry to remember that, that motif. You can see a, a lump there, but it's... Uh, but it's not quite definable. It's just, uh, and, but I think when they wash away this debris, they're going to start to see some of the really serious outcomes. And there's going to be, like with thalidomide, sadly, we're going to see this reversal and then there's going to be lawsuits. It, again, like, you know, asbestos, you know, DDT, you know, the, the famous you know, the insecticide that was, the gentleman got, I believe, a Nobel Peace Prize for creating it. And it was wonderful for what it did, but all of a sudden, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, the side effects of this thing were just staggering just staggering and we've got for example in australia we've got uh, entire uh, regions uh, land that cannot be used for um for grazing they can only be used mm. for uh, plant-based things because of the, the the lasting impact of this again i know that's a that's a, a, a bit of a, a long juxtapose but you get my point we, we tend to yeah. leap in with these and and then more so with this cannabis it, the science is still screaming at us now whoa 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 slow down this thing was, I look at, you know, sitcoms and television shows. I'm going back watching some of the shows that were done in the in the, in the early 2000s and then the 10s and, and the constant reference to weed being hopefully one day it'll be legal. It's going to be great. It's got medicine. It's got great potential. It's sown through all these, these uh, television series. And the, the promise of the panacea of weed has been there, like aggressively been there for 20 years now. Now, 20 years of promise with the science that we've thrown at it to, to uh, ex extract from this, this, you know, now totally engineered plant. It's not even natural anymore. There's no natural weed on the planet anyway. It doesn't exist. It, it, is, it is now, after all that science and all that promise and all that capacity, we're still struggling to get even a, 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 a small benefit out. I'm not saying there's no benefit. Sativex. Yes, it's helpful for people with cancer patients. Epidiolex, yes, uh, for it has a 25% efficacy rate. It's a fourth-line treatment for uh, Jure syndrome epilepsy. So when, it's not even the first line. It's the fourth line. Yes, and with some, like all drugs, are idiosyncratic. It does have a wonderful impact on certain people, but it has a lot of side effects. So, again, the, the, you've got this kind of – this is no panacea. This is even barely a – it barely registers on a, on a serious medicinal, uh, you know, sort of meter. It barely registers. It's, it just yeah. just moves the needle. But we're, we're raving as if it's this panacea. But, again, that's what propaganda does. It misrepresents and, and bludgeons you with its, uh, with its rant until you were tears to come and go, oh, okay, let's just do it. You know? 
Yeah, and not only that, I think part of the problem in, in terms of at least uh, diminishing the harm, you know, in people's perception is that people are still thinking of the 1960s and 70s mm. era cannabis, where it was, you know, two to three percent THC, and uh, the risks were much less. But now, you know, what we have today, as you said, I don't know that you could even classify it as cannabis or marijuana because really now the product is THC. Uh, and so the, the risks are greatly compounded and you're really seeing them, you know, manifest at the population level. You know, any single user might use frequently heavily and perhaps be fine. But when you're looking at it, uh, you know, mm. from the population perspective, this is where we're starting to see the, you know, rise in incidents in suicides, in schizophrenia, psychotic disorders. Um, unfortunately, in the U.S., you know, and, and this kind of boggles my mind because our public health system uh, is appallingly bad. We have to look towards, you know, Europe and Scandinavia, other places where they're actually collecting data on the incidence of schizophrenia and other you know, public mm. health um, and mental mental health uh, indicators, uh, which we we're not doing that here. I just don't understand why, but that certainly helps uh, big marijuana. Interesting, you brought that up. I think because what we've seen in the last five years, we've seen a uh, and I've, we've noticed it because I've been in, in this particular sector for about twelve years now. Prior to that, I was I was more in the education delivery side of things, so. The next level back of you know, research and understanding some of the you know, the, the public health and, and community uh, impacts weren't as as prominent. But since I've been in this space and having to advocate from the top down as well as educate from the bottom up, I've had to become a little bit more well, a lot more across the data and understanding it. But what we're seeing is a collapsing of uh, the drug use impact into the mental health data. They're not. They're not saying it contributes to and this is the factors it just collapses it everything's mental health so the pro-drug lo lobby the harm and the harm reduction only groups now that's it's an important distinction harm reduction only ideologists they're not people who who want to uh, who hate drug use and want to get people exit drug use and keep them alive while they do it which is a wonderful and noble thing these people want to use harm reduction as a vehicle to normalize drug use and australia is, is they've been the world leaders in the misuse of harm reduction and, and they're trying to export that across asia so we have you know, three and a half thousand uh, needle distribution programs in this country now uh, we have injecting rooms you know again the endeavor is not so much to save lives because they get again the have been hijacked by the the pro-drug lobby come in behind it Again, the data is being lost, so we, we can't delineate it out from the other, like schizophrenia because of drug use, you know, manic depressive bipolar because of drug use, psychosis because of drug use, family violence because of drug use. They're collapsing all the data in and trying to hide it. That's happened in the last five years. And we can go back, and we've actually written a few pieces just sort of showing that, saying, well, what's happening here, guys? Because if we need to, we need to lay down the, the lines and say, well, this this is an incidence of, for example, you know, schizophrenia or psychotic episodes, and I think marijuana has now been linked to the biggest leap from having a psychotic episode to a psychotic condition, uh, even double that of you know LSD, almost double that of LSD now, because uh, because again, you're going back to your statement. This is not the original designed plant. That, uh, that nature produced. It's just not that plant. Cannabis, for, to be cannabis, must have all the components in its natural order. Then what Between 80 and 120, depends on who you talk to, cannabinoids is about 400 different compounds in cannabis. So it's a naturally occurring plant. Your 2.5% THC is counted by your CBD and your CBN because the CBD we know has an antipsychotic impact. So and it's fascinating to watch, digressing into that space, it's fascinating to watch the people now banging on about, you know, THC does this, we you know, legalise weed. Oh, but guess what? We found out CBD can be antipsychotic and we can use it to treat cannabis use disorders. It's hilarious. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's weed logic. It's just weed logic because the natural occurring plant would have all those things. But as you said, it's been so engineered now that the natural occurring cannabis plant, the marijuana plant, does not exist. 
anywhere on the planet. It just doesn't exist anymore. It's it's a it's a engineered substance in a plant form. That's what it is. Well, and now they have these, uh, you know, ultra potent forms that are just basically pure THC, 95, 96, you know, up to 100, almost 100% THC, like the mm. wax, dabs, uh, yeah. shattered, butane, Butter. ash oil. Yeah. Yeah, and just the reports, like we recently had our um, our Southeastern Drug Summit, and we had a couple of presenters from Colorado, in, including a, a woman who lost her son uh, to suicide, and he was a user of these high-potency products. And the, the really scary thing and the tragic thing is once, especially when they're young and they're using these high-potency products, and uh, they develop a psychotic disorder. Uh, it's for for many. It's 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 permanent. Mm, correct. Um, you know, there's no going back from it. I think that's that's one of the biggest concerns we have, particularly with the developing brain. As you said, you know, between the ages of puberty, whichever they may be, up to the age of 26. Now, the arguments, the science we're looking at, is saying up to, even up to 32 for men. Uh, males have a, have a longer potential for developmental brain development. The second most important. Of course, developmental uh, brain developmental phase is when puberty is hit. The first is between the ages of sort of zero and six. That's when you know so much of the well, the brain grows to its full size, but then it continues to develop. And the second phase when it's uh, it's culling its you know all the branches and whatnot. Anyway, it, but the concern for us is, as you said, the permanency of this, these problems. And we know from some of the science that an adult is a heavy adult user abstains from cannabis for uh, you know, 90 days to 120 days, then cognitive function can return. It's slow, but it can return. And if you stay off the weed, you may get, get back full function, which is great. You know? So but there, so the argument could be for the adult, oh, well, I could use weed and when I want to stop, I'll stop. And, of course, the addiction factors, we won't even go down that road. So the complexities of that you know, easy in, easy out kind of model we know from addiction medicine and, and science that it's not that easy. Um, there's a whole bunch of factors, including physiological as well as sociological and, and anthropological factors that go into making addiction as powerful as it is. So, you know, walking back out of that is not easy. But when you've got a teenager with a developing brain flooding their, their you know, their, their system with these <sighs> neurotransmitting brain cell de destroying elements literally you, you're rewiring the brain and and then once you step into that psychotic space particularly because of the idios idiosyncratic nature of substances based on the human condition because we're all different and you know one person can smoke weed in, in the same batch and you can have two completely different responses it's like mdma you know we've had people in australia the same drugs literally the same batch one person dies, two people get sick, and one person has a good time and has a, a hangover for a week later, of course, as you do. But you've got this idiosyncratic response from the substance. But when it comes to the developing brain, the idiosyncratic nature of that goes goes up a whole new level. And that permanent disability that can can emerge from that is, is quite scary. Now, they may get back cognitive function, but it'll never be quite the same as it was. So, therefore, their traje trajectory developmentally and their potential and their capacity and agency moving forward are also being robbed. And that's what I love Bertha Madras's great, you know, line about, you know, we're not fighting against drugs, we're fighting for the brains of a generation. I think that's completely correct. And we use that that mantra often in our in our dialogue with people because this is this is a lot of this is irreparable. And when you start talking on a public health level, to a generation of harm, and we're talking up to let's say at the age of thirty. Let's let's put thirty as a as a limit. Then they argue now that ninety seven percent of all addictions happen before the age of thirty anyway. So let's just tag it at, at that. And once once you've got that in play, then you've got this whole generation eighteen. Uh, you know, whereas in America, you guys raised your drinking age to twenty one, legalized twenty one under Reagan, which was brilliant. We had we had it at twenty one, and we dropped it to 18 during the Vietnam War. So trying to get that back has been impossible. So from the 18 to 30, you've got so-called grown-ups, adults, who are, you know, and if they started early because they want to be grown-ups because when you know, every 15-year-old wants to be a grown-up and they say, I'm going to use weed, I'm going to use whatever, drink or whatever. Once they start down that path unabated, 
they need, they've got some real issues. And that long-term harm is often, as I said again, irreparable. And that public health nightmare, let alone the, the loss of humanity, the loss of productivity, the loss of uh, human capacity, the, the gene pool being you know, permanently damaged as a result of this, is just staggering. Yet this kind of overwhelming, oh, well, you know, we can manage you know, harm reduction. We'll manage it with harm reduction. That's a standard line. Oh, harm reduction will fix that. Damage management is not a solution to a permanently uh, harmed person. All you're doing is containing ongoing harms and you're not actually helping that person develop. And that's the, the default position of the pro-drug lobby and that's getting leverage in the public, uh, public square. That's concerning. I recently wrote a report on uh, supervised injection facilities and I read up on um, a couple of the facilities in Australia and on the face of it, um, I don't know how the proponents are able to continue to justify them when, uh, like for example, the one in, if I recall correctly, uh, I believe it was in Richmond, uh, their mm -hmm. overdose rates was a hundred and something times higher than street users. For the King's Cross, I think it was over 60 times higher. So I don't see how that uh, can be cost effective. Again, that the, the sector in Australia is is run by uh, harm reduction. And I don't want to get to the, the intricacies of policy. We did a series of videos, which is on our YouTube channel, called Drug Policy Changing the Narrative, which explains it's a series that uh, Drug Free America Foundation have used. Uh, explains what has happened. Again, the policies in, them, in and of themselves are, have got some good, good good potential. But, but again, the, if harm reduction and the exit from drug use was the goal and the only goal, then there's value in any and all of these mechanisms. No argument. In we want to see the argument you can't rehabilitate a dead drug user is a great line, and we just throw that out there. It's like the war on drugs as well. Yeah, but are you rehabilitating the drug user? Because every time you empower an injecting episode, regardless of whether it's in a supervised environment or not, you are putting that person's life at, at risk and their health at risk every single time. And the argument is they're going to do it anyway. Correct. For every one uh, episode in an injecting room, there's between, between 70 and 99 happen outside the injecting room anyway. So the argument is... That, that's what right, I was going to say. I mean, yeah. how many users actually want to go to the trouble to go to the especially if you have a, a heroin addiction and you're you know starting to rattle, you're not going to go uh, cross town to an injection injection room. The argument we've we put out there, so, and the simple question we ask is, yeah, again, exactly, why would you leave the comfort of your own home or your own squat to travel to a, another space when you're Jones in to get an injection? The simple question is because you've got a product you're not sure about. So you go to the ejecting room and you under supervision, state-sponsored, taxpayer-sponsored supervision, you can experiment with a drug with minimal risk. Well, you, you know, you get, you know, we've got naloxone is now free, free to everybody in Australia. It's, it's been carte blanche for the last five years. So naloxone is everywhere for overdose withdrawal, which is great, you know, I get that. But now we have naloxone parties, you know, so you can try whatever drug you want and then the, the, the user who's supplying the gear will come and bring you back if you if you tend to die. So, again, we've got this, again, the misuse of harm reduction is, is rife. So you go to injecting room to try a substance that you're not sure about. And if it's a bad bad trip, then the chances of you dying because you're going under supervision are going to be less. Now, is that a good thing? I said it's a good thing in one sense that a person's life's been saved, absolutely. But they deliberately, you're also enabling them to deliberately put themselves at risk to try a substance and then talk about that the development of that product. Okay, well, with this was too hot cut it down a bit, there's too much fentanyl in it, you know, whatever. You know, it becomes a, a, a an experimental tool for the drug-using sector rather than a vehicle to help people exit drug use. That's mm -hmm. got to be the ultimate outcome. And if that mm -hmm. is not the, the single greatest priority, then what is the priority of this purpose? It's, it's, it's literally normalising drug use. And what was happening in Richmond is it was just insane and then local People are up in arms. The police were up in arms about it, you know, and, and they kind of, in one sense, the police are kind of, this would be a good thing for them. 
but they were up in arms about it because what they saw the crime rates going up. There were people in the facility dealing drugs to the people coming in. They had to be sacked. Well, that's the other thing. It creates a nucleus oh. for you know a captive market for drug dealers. It's called the honeypot syndrome, and, yeah. and all and all the, and all the bees come in now, and that's exactly what they said. Oh, it doesn't do that, but it does. We, we've seen the evidence for that. So, but again, you can make evidence dance, and this is the thing that the harm reduction sector in Australia is all about because we're the world leaders in harm reduction. So we're we're exporting this across the planet. You know, in other words, injecting rooms, and uh, although Europe did a little bit of this, you know, we, ours was we started in 1985 with our harm minimization platform, which is a good platform, by the way. It has three pillars. And for the first time, this last latest iteration, 1970, sorry, 2017, was demand reduction was the first pillar, the very first pillar, demand reduction. First time in its 35-year history. Then supply reduction and then harm reduction is for those caught in the tyranny of addiction at the bottom of the cliff to, to rescue them and to keep them alive and help them exit drug use. But now harm reduction and harm minimization are interchangeable terms. They just, well, oh, oh, I do harm reduction. Now, hang on a minute. I do harm minimization. And then they'll start talking about ejecting rooms and, and uh, you know, decriminalising drugs and uh, syringe programs. No, 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 no. Harm minimization has three pillars. And the priority is demand reduction. And that should be the highest priority. Now, in our, just to give you a juxtapose again, Sharif, in our, we have three, three different uh, substances in our drug policy framework. We have tobacco, alcohol, like yourself. And illicit substances. Now, in Australia, we have the, the lowest, arguably the lowest daily tobacco rate use rates in the entire world because we have only one focus, one voice, and one message in the marketplace around tobacco, and that's quit. We, we introduced plain, package, plain, uh, plain packaging to our tobacco. We introduced that, the first in the world. We've gone hard after tobacco. We have one mantra, quit, quit. There is no dissenting voices in the marketplace. There's no one saying, oh, you, you can still use a little bit. There's no safe smoking rooms. There's no, you know, it's it's quit. Sure, there's there's a there's a, there are you know failures on the way to that goal, but it doesn't shift. So the inability to achieve the quit goal does not drive all the other policy frameworks. They are allowed and permitted, but there's only one focus: quit, quit. One focus, one message, one voice. When it comes to alcohol, because the industry is so entrenched in the culture, and by the way, we have our daily tobacco rates on average are about daily usage is about 12.5% of the population. At the end of World War II, the aggregate population use daily smoking was 52%. So that's a huge reduction. And on a socially acceptable legal drug, by the way, remember that, it's legal and socially acceptable. And and so, but with alcohol in our country, we've had to change the last ten years because we've seen a, a spike in misuse, and we've, they've gone under after the industry because it self-regulates. And now we have, or well, COVID's changed it, but now we've got our messaging around alcohol is moderate, moderate, be responsible, moderate, be responsible. Sure, it's you know it's better than quit, <laughs> but uh, sorry, not as good as quit, but it's there. But when it comes to illicit drugs, the mantra is keep using, just don't die. Keep using, just don't die. Keep using. So same drug framework, same harm minimization framework with three pillars. One is quit, one is moderate, one is keep using, just don't die. The cognitive dissonance in this place is just staggering. And, of course, what you need to do is to keep that argument going. You have to, to cut it off from origins and cut it off from, from good practice and just talk about it in its own little context. So, in other words, you know, oh, drug use is its own maelstrom, and it is a maelstrom. It's awful, creates a maelstrom. So we're trying to fix the storm rather than say, hey, what created the storm? Let's step back from the storm and let's start dealing with that because what, what we're doing is adding to this maelstrom. Are we adding to, like, the argument for us is, is what are we doing? Is it reducing um, uh, re recovery, facilitating recovery uh, from drug use or is it enabling, empowering, equipping and endorsing ongoing drug use? It's a simple question. Is what mechanism is what is what it, is it doing one or the other, and if it's not reducing and facilitating recovery from drug use and remediating from drug use, then what is it doing? And I think that they're just, and so you got to then reevaluate the policy mechanism on the basis of those questions and say, well, okay, so is this helping people recover and exit drug use? 
No, in fact, what but is it being used to normalize drug use? And that's the agenda of the pro-drug lobby. They infiltrate the harm, the genuine, legitimate, please hear that, the genuine and legitimate harm reduction sector of people who hate drugs but want to keep people alive until they can exit drug use. It's a noble cause and a right cause, but they infiltrate that sector and then they use semantic contagion to reframe the language and then they drive these things. Oh, we went from needle exchange to needle distribution. So there's no accountability anymore because they started off with needle exchange. But, oh, but they, because like anyone, they start using drugs. Once you've had your hit, you don't care what you do with the syringe, you throw it away. You don't, you don't yeah. respond. Not, not everyone who does IV drug use is like that. Of course, we know that. I'm not going to tar everyone with the same brush. But as you said, the addicted person who's jonesing, jonesing, and, and just wants a hit and uh, don't care what happens next, then that person is a, a public health liability to, to, to themselves but also to those around them. And we've got three and a half, I said, three and a half thousand needle distribution programs. And I could walk into one tomorrow without questions and say, can I have some syringes here? Hey, how many do you want? No questions asked. And then Are you able to buy them at the pharmacy? You know, straight without uh, a prescription? In, interesting. Um we had to fight because diabetics in this country had to pay for their syringes, but drug users didn't have to. So they had the diabetic group fought. They finally got the right to have free syringes as well. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> well, at least something but, good came of it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, with far as prescription, you don't need to go to a pharmacy because you have these houses, these little places all through the community. The fundamental problem, Sharif, there is zero accountability. And because, you know, if you want accountability, you're punitive, Sharif. That's your problem. You're punitive. <laughs> and therefore, you have a criminal justice mindset. A healthcare mindset just cares for the patient. No, no. A healthcare, prof a healthcare professional cares about susceptibility and exposure, always. Etiology really? demands that. Demands it. So it has to monitor and deal with the environmental factors that create exposure and susceptibility. Failure to do that is poor medical practice. And it has prohibitive Sorry, it has prescriptive elements, not just prescriptive. And all proscriptive elements have a prohibition element to them. And there are consequences and accountability factors entailed in that. It's just good science, but it's ignored again. Once drug is involved, you know, what you call rational thinking exits the stage because, you know, substance use just unravels that process quite quickly. Well, thank you so much, Shane. Uh, this has been such a delight to to talk with you um, wish you all the best in your endeavors and i look forward to working and collaborating uh in the future oh absolutely sure thank you it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you and hopefully it's useful and you have a great rest of the evening thanks again shane and thank you to all of our listeners this podcast is made possible with the generous support of the adelson family foundation and to find out more about the great work Drug Free America Foundation is doing all over the world, please visit our website at www.dfaf.org. Thanks again.